Well, hello, this is the Jazz Focus, and my name is John Clark. Happy to have you with us again. Or possibly for the first time, who knows? The purpose of this podcast is to uh, shed some light on some unusual corners or some cobwebby corners of jazz history and the recording history of jazz musicians in general. I'm not trying to give you a, a specific jazz history or progression. I just want to illuminate a few interesting elements here and there. And our subject today is the early recording career of Mary Lou Williams, one of the great jazz pianists of the 1920s and 30s. She's not usually given credit, uh, the credit that she's due, uh, because her recording career during that uh, period was largely devoted to band recordings. She did make a few solos, uh, but she was very, very well thought of by performers as, as diverse as, as Fats Waller and Duke Ellington and up to uh, Thelonious Monk and Dizzy Gillespie later on in the 1940s. She was born Mary Scruggs in Atlanta in 1910. She lived until 1981. She had a very long career uh, with a couple of little bleeps in there where she wasn't playing. We'll talk about those in a while. She uh, was listed as Mary Lou Burley on her first recordings. Uh, Burley, I believe, was her stepfather's name. She took that on. But she was officially Mary Lou Williams by 1926 when she married John Williams, who was one of numerous musicians by that name. But this particular one was a reed player, primarily clarinet and saxophone, uh, who was born in 1905 in Memphis. He grew up in Kansas City. Lived a long life as well, till 1996, and he was pretty well known as a reed player down in the Southwest. He led bands, he was on the vaudeville circuit, um, uh, touring with other uh, singers and so forth, and he put together a band called the Syncopators in uh, 1927 or so uh, that featured his wife, Mary Lou Williams. He also played with several of the bands that uh, we're going to talk about, Terrence T. Holder and then later on Andy Kirk as well. So Mary Lou Williams was, by any accounts, a child prodigy as a jazz pianist. And of course, when she was young, the idea of jazz piano playing was very different than it became even shortly thereafter. Uh, the great Harlem stride pianists like James P. Johnson and Fats Waller uh, didn't get going on recordings until 1922 or 1923, although their performances were known from stage shows and theater shows and things like that. Mary Lou Williams, or Mary Scruggs at the time, was supporting her family, at least in part by the time she was a preteen, uh, seven or eight years old even, playing at parties and so forth, and she had a must have had a, a, an amazing memory and mind to have absorbed all of the different styles of piano playing, ragtime, blues, and then the early stride piano style as well. And somewhere along the line, she also uh, developed uh, enough abilities uh, to write music and to compose music, and more importantly, to arrange music, which is something we're going to be talking about on her early recordings. So by the time she married uh, John Williams, she was uh, playing uh, with a number of different groups uh, with him and uh, in different places as well. She was touring with a vaudeville group, and her first recordings were under the title of Jeanette's Cinco Jazzers. I always thought Jeanette was a pseudonym for Mary Lou Williams, but it was in fact the singer they were touring with, although she did not participate in the recording. We're going to be listening to a couple of those sides a little bit later um, in our Scratchy Records Symposium. We're going to be hearing some better recorded things to begin with. So that band, the Syncopators, that I'd mentioned that was founded by John Williams, uh, was active in Memphis, and it was co-led by Mary Lou Williams, his wife, and uh, they 
toured around that area in the Southwest for a couple of years, from 1927 till about 1929 or so. And uh, they made a couple of recordings, as I just mentioned, and we will hear those, or a couple of them anyway, in a little while. Now, in 1929, uh, John Williams was offered the chance to join Andy Kirk's band. Andy Kirk was a Southwest musician. He was born in 1898, actually in Colorado, where he studied violin and viola with Wilberforce Whiteman, Paul Whiteman's father. And he played in some groups out there, including one that was led by George Morrison. And uh, gradually he morphed over to string bass and also tuba and bass saxophone. He was a bass player and uh, he was playing with Terrence T. Holder's band in Dallas as early as about 1928 or so. The name of that band was the Clouds of Joy, or originally it was called the Dark Clouds of Joy. And um, that band held sway in Dallas and was quite important for a couple of years. And then Holder himself, the leader of the band, got into some financial or legal difficulty and basically disappeared. And so the band elected Andy Kirk to take over the group at that point. He didn't particularly want to be a band leader, but uh, fate thrust him into that role. And with that band, he moved to Kansas City in 1929. And it was a band that was originally called the Clouds of Joy, and then it became known as the Twelve Clouds of Joy and so forth. Um, they got a good residence in Kansas City and uh, the opportunity to make some recordings. They actually had an audition with Jack Cap, who was the head of Brunswick Records at the time, and uh, he was the chief talent scout there, and he auditioned the uh, Andy Kirk band uh, at some point in 1929, probably in October or early November. And uh, as it turned out, their piano player, who was a name, man named Marion Jackson, uh, was late. And in order not to mess up the audition, uh, Andy Kirk uh, asked John Williams, who was in the band, he said, is your wife nearby? Can she come in and just fill in? And um, she was, and she did. And Jack Cap was quite impressed with her. Uh, uh, having a, a female pianist in an otherwise all-male band was pretty unusual at the time. And she was also an exceptional player, which Cap recognized. And so they passed their audition, such as it was, and Cap set up a, a date to record uh, in a week or so, I think it was November 7th or thereabouts in 1929 for the Brunswick label, which was a significant record label at that point. So, uh, time came for the recording date, and uh, the real pianist, uh, Marion Jackson, the regular one, showed up, and Jack Cap said, well, where's the woman? And Andy Kirk said, well, she's not our regular pianist. And Jack Cap said, well, I want her on the recordings. So, they had to send for her and bring her in to make the recordings. And Two of the things that they recorded that day were, in fact, Mary Lou Williams' compositions. After that audition, she had asked Andy Kirk if uh, he would play some of her arrangements and compositions, and he said yes, and they did, and they turned out to be quite good. So those were a couple of the things they recorded on the first day. Now, Mary Lou Williams as a composer was unusual. Uh, we'll hear some of the, the, the early pieces that she did. Uh, the first one is called Mess a Stomp, M-E-S-S dash A dash S-T-O-M-P, Mess a Stomp. And that was one of her compositions and arrangements. And it utilizes some very unusual harmonic motion and also some funny melodic structures as well. And also, as well, some very interesting colors using different solos, different instrumental combinations, um, some different strains, almost as if it were a ragtime tune, but 
very modern sounding in a lot of ways, and we're going to hear that. Then a little bit later, we're going to hear Cloudy, which was another Mary Lou Williams composition, a blues composition, which utilizes some very interesting harmonic uh, devices in the blues and some instrumental colors that were quite unusual. So those are things we're going to be hearing, as well as some later ones that she did. Um, many of these feature some outstanding piano solos. Uh, we're going to be hearing from Mary Lou and hear her sort of combination of stride piano with ragtime influence, even some novelty piano influence of the Zez Confrey style. And she blended all of these different things into a very unique piano style that, as time went on into the 1930s, smoothed out into a very direct jazz style that was equally blues-based and stride-based. And we're going to hear some examples of those a little bit later. So what I think we'll do is listen to three sides right now. These are the first three sides recorded by Andy Kirk and his 12 Clouds of Joy. And I'll tell you the personnel here right now. There were two trumpets, Gene Prince and Harry Lawson. I believe Gene Prince is responsible for the trumpet solos. He's a very unusual trumpet stylist, as we will hear. Alan Durham is a trombone player. He was a cousin of Eddie Durham, who was much better known. Uh, he was a trombone player and an, a guitar player uh, and perhaps more noted as an arranger and composer for the Benny Moten Band, which was the top band in Kansas City at the time. And then later he went with the Count Basie Band and even later with the Jimmy Lunsford Band. So he had a long career. And this is his cousin, Alan Durham, on trombone. The reed section is made up of John Harrington, who plays clarinet and alto. He does most of the clarinet solos, I believe. John Williams on alto and baritone. And Lawrence Slim Freeman on tenor sax. There's a violin in this band, a man named Claude Williams. He was known as Claude Fiddler Williams, and he uh, later went with Count Basie. In fact, he was Count Basie's uh, first guitar player, uh, played with him briefly in Kansas City and came east uh, with Basie's band in 1936 and uh, played with him for about a year on guitar and even took an occasional violin solo. We can hear one on a live recording from the Chatterbox uh I think it was the Chatterbox on St. Louis Blues as a violin solo. Um, and then he was replaced by Freddie Green, which of course made the All-American Rhythm section. But he's playing violin here. Mary Lou Williams plays piano and is responsible, as far as we know, for the arrangements. A man named William Durvin plays banjo and guitar. And a word here, the guitar solos are sometimes called banjo solos. They do not sound like banjo solos to me. They sound like they might be a resonator guitar, like a national guitar, which was a... Uh, an instrument that had been developed and marketed starting in 1927, an early metal uh, guitar with a resonator inside. It later merged with the Dobro company and came to be known as that. We also have Edward Crackshot McNeil on drums, who was a very interesting and innovative drummer, and it was only the fact that he died quite young in about 1930 that uh, prevented him from being much better known to the jazz public, I'm sure. And then Andy Kirk himself plays tuba and bass sax. Later on he plays uh, string bass as well, but not on these recordings. Um, we also have a small group which will be recording the second tune. The first tune is Mesa Stomp, we just mentioned that, and then the second one is Blue Clarinet Stomp, which features, oddly enough, clarinets, and probably John Harrington as the chief soloist on that. And on that Andy Kirk switches to bass sax, Claude Williams plays violin, Durvin on guitar, and um, McNeil on drums, and there will also be a scat vocal by Harry Lawson, the trumpet player, who doesn't play, he just scats on that one. And then the third of our trifecta here is Cloudy, the uh, Mary Lou Williams composition that uh, is quite bluesy. So let's listen to those three compositions, 
uh, three recordings by Andy Kirk, the first and third of which are compositions and arrangements by Mary Lou Williams. Thank you. 
some interesting recordings by a, uh, a group that was just getting it together. As I mentioned, the Andy Kirk Band had originally been led by a trumpet player named Terrence T. Holder down in Dallas, and he was not reliable in a lot of different ways, so he uh, uh, was either forced out of the band or he just simply disappeared, and Andy Kirk took it over. So by the time they got to Kansas City in 1929 and were given the opportunity to make recordings, they were a pretty 
well-drilled unit. And as I said, Mary Lou Williams began writing charts for this group right around the same time. And by her own admission, she really didn't know what she was doing. She didn't know how to write music at the time. Andy Kirk was a pretty well-trained musician. He had gone to some conservatory classes, I guess, and he was responsible for uh, transcribing what she was playing and uh, her dictation for uh, the types of arrangements she wanted to do. And then gradually she learned her craft and she became quite good at it as well. So we heard Mesa Stomp. This was from November of 1929. Um, John Harrington is probably the clarinet player on here. He does most of the other clarinet solos. It sounds a little bit different on that recording. It could have been John Williams, but I think it was John Harrington. Uh, it's an arrangement by Mary Lou Williams, and it's a very well-organized arrangement. It never pauses. It was like many of Duke Ellington's arrangements. It, it didn't just lump along from solo to solo. It uh, alternated solos and ensemble parts, alternated uh, different colors. It had a saxophone section solely. It had brass section solely, uh, clarinets in there as well. Very interesting arrangement with a very Southwest sound. Now, the Southwest bands at the time, Kansas City, Oklahoma, Texas, and so forth, they uh, tended to emphasize the blues more than the Eastern bands, which emphasized pop tunes and Tin Pan Alley things and more... Uh, uh, sophisticated sounds, I guess. So the Southwest bands, of which, for example, Benny Moten was the best known, also Walter Page, and a little bit later Count Basie, tended to have a kind of a, a of an umpa type of style, not in a in a in a polka or a waltz type of way, but just uh, the tuba would play on the uh, one and three, and then the banjo and the piano would emphasize the offbeats, the two and four, and it gave a a, a kind of a breathless. Uh, uh, feeling to the rhythm section. It wasn't until Benny Moten came east in 1932 and uh, started introducing a four-beat uh, style that Southwest jazz changed and really started bringing its influence to the east as well. We also heard an excellent piano solo on there, um, very uh, stridey in its, uh, in, in its uh, sound. Uh, Mary Lou Williams played a two-chorus piano solo in there, I think with no accompaniment at all, just by herself. It's fitting since it was her composition. The second tune was the Blue Clarinet Stomp, which I don't believe Mary Williams had any particular part in. I don't think the piano was even there. We heard a bass sax solo by Andy Kirk, uh, as well as him playing uh, the bass line. John Harrington was featured quite extensively on clarinet. And we had a guitar, I believe, solo by William Durvin in there as well. So a string of solos, but an interesting southwest feel to it, as I just mentioned. Then we ended up with Cloudy, a blues composition by Mary Lou Williams. Again, an arrangement by her, not as complex as the arrangement on Mesa Stomp, but utilizing some interesting colors as well. First of all, we had a trumpet solo by Gene Prince. He was in a very unusual sounding trumpet player. He had a sound almost like Jabbo Smith's, kind of light and uh, emphasizing the high register. And he'll be featured on a couple of numbers coming up as well. Neat little moment after that was the clarinet and tuba trade in there. Andy Kirk switched back to tuba and John Harrington, and he sort of traded back and forth, not precisely four measures each, but uh, sort of had a musical conversation. We also heard our first tenor sax solo by Lawrence Slim Freeman, and then a trombone solo by Alan Durham, and another piano solo by Mary Lou Williams. So that gives a good idea of what the Kirk band was sounding like at the time. We're going to move on to another couple recordings. Eh, we'll do three recordings, I suppose, by um, 
this particular band, although uh, the first two recordings, or I guess the first one recording, we're only going to do one from this session, was by John Williams and his Memphis Stompers. So John Williams had come to join uh, Andy Kirk in 1929, and he uh, recorded the same band and presumably the same arrangements they were playing as Andy Kirk's Twelve Clouds of Joy uh, as John Williams and his Memphis Stompers. And this was in November of 1929, November 9th, so probably a couple of days after the first recording session. And this was released on Vocalion. It was probably done in the same studio. Brunswick and Vocalion were related uh, uh, recording companies. And uh, this was just released under John Williams' name. He recorded two tunes, and we're going to listen to the second one called Lotta Sax Appeal, uh, which naturally features some saxophone playing in there as well. This is another Mary Lou Williams composition. Then we're going to go to two other Mary Lou Williams compositions and arrangements from the Andy Kirk book from a couple of days later. All of these were done in the first two weeks of November of 1929, and they were all recorded in Kansas City. We're going to hear number two is Corky Stomp, and number three is Froggy Bottom. So we're going to hear three more by the Andy Kirk band. The first was released under John Williams and his Memphis Stompers. So, lot of sax appeal, Corky Stomp, and Froggy Bottom. Thank <laughs> you. 
three by Andy Kirk, 12 Clouds of Joy. The first one, a lot of sax appeal released under John Williams and his Memphis Stompers for Vocalion. All of these done in November of 1929. So a lot of sax appeal was an interesting tune, probably arranged by Mary Lou Williams, uh, composed perhaps by as well. Um, in general, these songs are more involved than what most Southwest bands were playing at the time, which were largely blues-based or had relatively simple forms, didn't do a lot of pop tunes from Tin Pan Alley. Uh, these three tunes by Mary Lou Williams were much more complicated, much more sophisticated uh, in their arrangements and also in their construction, just the tunes themselves. This lot of sax appeal starts out with a very raggy-sounding piano intro, ragtime-y, 
and is uh, primarily a feature for John Williams on baritone sax. Uh, he re-recorded this with Andy Kirk uh, in 1936. It became a bit of a big hit, but this was the original recording. So he plays uh, a long solo and then starts trading with Alan Durham on trombone and uh, uh, Gene Prince on trumpet. There's uh, following a long trombone solo, an unusually long trombone solo of a chorus or so, chorus or two, that shows that Alan Durham was certainly a, a trombonist to be reckoned with at the time in 1929, when most trombone players were following the style of Miff Mole, very few were playing in a, in a melodic style, and we have to think about Jack Teagarden and uh, Jimmy Harrison and maybe uh, Benny Morton in his early career, but Alan Durham was quite a fine player. Then we have a two chorus, or a, or a piano solo at any rate, um, which ends up with a baritone sax and trumpet sort of jamming the ending. It ends a little bit inconclusively, but uh, the whole performance is certainly impressive. Then two tunes by Andy Kirk's band, the same band under his name, Corky and Froggy Bottom, both of which are Mary Lou Williams' compositions and arrangements. Uh, Corky... Uh, utilizes some very unusual harmonies and some unusual progressions. Clearly Mary Lou Williams thought pianistically when she was composing songs and uh, translating them, uh, she or Andy Kirk helping, uh, into band instruments was a little bit awkward in places, but it created some very interesting stylistic devices, and we hear them here on Corky. A uh, couple of interesting points in the uh, arrangement. We have a trombone solo to begin with, stating the melody, with the two trumpets playing an obligato and harmony around him. Then there's an alto sax break and into a minor key strain that is played by the saxophones. After that, we have trumpet solos and piano solos. The piano solo is accompanied just by drums, Ed Crackshot McNeil, we talked about him earlier, and utilizes some of the interesting James P. Johnson voicings that Mary Lou Williams was using, even in 1929. And then we get to hear a little break, a solo by Ed McNeil, to give a little idea of why he was so well thought of. He had actually toured with the Barnum and Bailey groups uh, in circuses, and circuses require some pretty significant drumming, as you can imagine, and he was considered a great technician, as well as a great jazz player, as well, for the short time that he was recording. Then the out chorus involves a uh, backdrop to another trumpet solo by Gene Prince that sort of brings it to an Armstrong-like climax. Then we finished with Froggy Bottom. Starts out with a semi-classical piano introduction and saxophone uh, obligato there, leading into a really rolling minor strain, which goes into a major blues, all featuring Mary Lou Williams on piano. Then we have an alto saxophone solo, and I'm not sure who it was by, whether by John Harrington or John Williams. Um, I think Albert McCarthy credited John Harrington and even mentioned how much he sounded like Frank Trumbauer when the same tonal production that he had. I'm not sure it wasn't John Williams, though, but either way, a good solo. And then another trumpet solo by Gene Prince, utilizing some of those high notes. And then just a jam section, uh, jam session uh, coda, or last chorus, to bring the performance to a close. We can see from these recordings that we've heard so far that the main soloist in this band was doubtless Mary Lou Williams on piano. And... Uh, Considering the fact that she was just 19 years old at the time and was responsible for most of the library that was being recorded, that's a pretty heavy burden on any performer. And uh, then to have her soloing on every, practically every number as well and having several of these performances really revolve around her solos, that's pretty extraordinary and uh, speaks very well of her and of the regard that the musicians had for her. And also we have to 
say a word of thanks to Jack Cap, the producer of these recordings, for insisting that Mary Lou Williams be on them. Remember, there was another pianist who played regularly with the band, Marion Jackson, but Mary Lou Williams quickly supplanted him. Uh, they had toured for a while with two pianos, and uh, as Albert McCarthy in his book Big Band Jazz says, that didn't work at all. And one can imagine. So Mary Lou Williams took over the regular chair, and uh, she stayed with the uh, Kirk Band up until about 1942. She and John Williams divorced in 1939 or so, and uh, she uh, later went on to write for Duke Ellington, partly because she was married to one of his trumpet players, Harold Shorty Baker. They held a, had a band for a little while as well. Then, after her foray with Ellington, she came back to New York and she became a mentor to the young bebop musicians. Her harmonic awareness and uh, her willingness to learn and ability to uh, synthesize new approaches uh, held her uh, in good stead with players like Bud Powell and Thelonious Monk and Dizzy Gillespie, all of whom looked at her as a, as a mentor and, and a good friend. And uh, she participated in some of those uh, jam sessions in, in the early bebop uh, movement as well. In the 1950s, she moved to Europe for a couple of years, and she played as a soloist. She ended up taking a few years off. She got disillusioned with the music business and uh, basically just burned out more than anything else. And so from 1954 to 1956 or so, she really didn't play much at all. She embraced religion at that point. She was a convert to Catholicism. And from 1956 until the end of her life in 1981, she composed a lot of religious music and jazz settings or religious texts and things like that. She did a jazz mass and... Um, uh, quite a bit of music to also raise money for addicted musicians. Uh, she was part of the uh, Belcanto Foundation, which I believe she founded, that helped musicians in need, addicted musicians in need. And some people have said that might have been because of what happened to Charlie Parker dying uh, as young as he did because of addiction. She had been a good friend of his as well. And so she devoted most of the rest of her life to raising money for that organization. She uh, went back to the jazz clubs and was noted as a jazz piano soloist for the rest of her life. She was an educator. Uh, she taught uh, college and jazz studies down, I believe, at the University of North Carolina or down in the North Carolina area, which is where she ended up when she finally passed away in 1981. She also composed some longer, more concert or classical works, like her Zodiac Suite in the 1940s, which was not formally recorded, but was recorded in bits and pieces, and a live concert was recorded of that, where she used the signs of the Zodiac uh, to create pieces based on the personalities of certain musicians that she knew who were born under those particular signs. So we're going to go back a little bit further in time and listen to a couple of the first recordings that Mary Lou Williams made. These were done in 1927, and as I mentioned, she and her husband, uh, John Williams at the time, were touring with a blues singer named Jeanette James, and the band's name was Jeanette's Cinco Jazzers. And remember, John Williams' band was called the Syncopators, so it was his band uh, backing up Jeanette. They made two recordings with her singing, and then two recordings as an instrumental group, sometime around January of 1927. And these were done for the Paramount label. Uh, Paramount uh, was... Uh, not the greatest label in terms of sound quality. Uh, these were done in Chicago, and so we'll have to put up with the sound a little bit, but the music is well worth it. We're going to hear two sides, uh, one by Jeanette Cinco Jazzers in January, and one by John Williams Cinco Jazzers in February for Paramount, both recorded in Chicago. The first one is called The Bumps, and uh, this features Henry McCord on trumpet, 
Bradley Bullet on trombone, John Williams on alto, and it says baritone sax, but it sounds more like a bass sax to me, to be honest. Mary Lou Burley, a.k.a. Mary Lou Williams on piano, Joe Williams on banjo, and Robert Price on drums, and it's the same group for both recording sessions. So the first tune, as I said, is called The Bumps, and the second tune is called Down in Galleon, and uh, the composer for that one is listed as unknown, but very well might be Mary Lou Williams. Certainly the arrangement is involved enough. It could be by her, or at least developed by her. So right now, we're going to listen to The Bumps and Down in Galleon. <laughs> Thank you. 
a couple of recordings down at the very beginning of Mary Lou Williams' recording career. We heard The Bumps by Jeanette Cinco Jazzers from January of uh, 1927. And that was a, a bluesy performance. It featured an alto solo by John Williams for a couple of choruses. Then he switches over to, I think, bass sax, maybe a baritone, but he's playing a bass line at any rate, which fills out the rhythm section considerably uh, underneath the trumpet and trombone solos, which come up. Then Mary Lou Williams plays a, uh, a very effective piano solo, considering the fact that she was, uh, what, 17 years old at the time, or 16 years old, I think, at the time. And uh, she's uh, supported uh, by a, some nice brass figures underneath her as well. And then it goes to a banjo solo. In this case, I think it probably is a banjo. And then to an out chorus. So very easy little performance there, but with some nice arranging touches. And the same could be said of the next one, which is called Down in Galleon by John Williams Cinco Jazzers. Maybe not from the same uh, recording session, but from one that uh, was not too far away, probably within a month or so. This was the same group and uh, had an interesting little uh, switcheroo in the middle. We had a uh, blues chorus by the ensemble up front, and then we went to a series of solos which were backed by something like a tango rhythm. The bass sax again, followed by trumpet, and then the trombone goes into a straight blues solo, which makes one think that uh, Bradley Bullitt, the trombone soloist, had heard George Brunus and his recording of the Tin Roof Blues with the New Orleans Rhythm Kings back in 1922. That was a, a famous recording among trombone players, and he more or less quoted the, the solo at the beginning. And then it went uh, out uh, as it came in with a sort of a jammed blues chorus. That down in Galleon and its session mate, uh, Goose Grease, which is a little more fully realized as an arrangement, were both probably played on stage, uh, you know, bringing on the, the, the singer, Jeanette James in that case, because they toured vaudeville, the band did, with Jeanette James, and uh, they were probably numbers that the band was featured on before the singer came out. So I'd recommend going listen to the other one as well. Those two recordings were made for the Paramount Recording Company, which was one of the many small recording companies that were begun right around the time of World War I when the copyright uh, protections on the recording technology that had been put forth by Edison and a few others were finally released. The initial copyrights expired, and so the stranglehold that the big companies like Edison and Columbia and uh, HMV or Victor had on the... Um, recording industry were finally released about 1917 or 18, and then all of these little companies sprang up. Thankfully, most of them started recording blues and jazz uh, performers a little bit later on in a series that they called Race Records. Uh, they were meant to be marketed towards uh, the race, the African-American race, who were presumed to be the main audience for that type of music. And race music could also have been extended to ethnic records, too. For example, Polish records or Irish or Jewish or whatever would be made, and then the communities that uh, were part of that ethnicity were targeted in the marketing and so forth. The Paramount Recording Company was founded in 1917 and lingered on until the middle of the Depression in 1932 when it finally went out of business. It was parented by the Wisconsin Chair Company, and the Wisconsin Chair Company was uh, producing Victrolas. I guess they weren't called Victrolas if they were uh, not Victors, but they were uh, recording devices that were marketed as furniture, as they were back then. It was a big cabinet. You'd sit in the middle of your living room, and there'd be a record player in there and then room to hold records. And so what could be more 
more logical than, as a marketing tool, producing records to play on your very own record machine. And that's what they did. And uh, several companies like Jeanette and a couple of others did that as well. Paramount initially made all its recordings in Grafton, Wisconsin, which is where the main factory was, but uh, that was inconvenient to say the least. So they opened studio a studio in Chicago, which was famous for its poor sound quality, and we heard some poor sound in those recordings. Uh, of course, all the masters or the, the, the main discs that were recorded have long since been lost, so we're pretty much at the... Uh, at the uh, um, mercy of whatever the best existing recording is. So we heard those two, so hope you got some music out of those. Your ears get accustomed to listening to those after a while if you like this type of music. So we're going to finish up with two more recordings by Mary Lou Williams, featured with Andy Kirk and his 12 Clouds of Joy. These are recordings uh, that were made about a year later, and the difference in the band is significant. The personnel is basically the same. Uh, the only difference being is that Edgar Battle replaced Gene Prince, and so he's responsible for the trumpet solos coming up. And they added a vocalist who uh, is not going to be featured on either of these tunes because we're concentrating on Mary Lou Williams here. And uh, the two tunes we're going to hear are Mary's Idea from April 30th of 1930, once again back recording for Brunswick. And then following that, we'll end up with Getting Off a Mess from July 15th of 1930, another Mary Lou Williams composition and arrangement. And clearly she had been doing her homework in the interim. She, uh, in addition to being an even better soloist, she uh, had uh, evolved even more interesting ideas about arranging and song structure and form as well. So right now we're going to listen to these two tunes, Mary's Idea and Getting Off a Mess. Thank you. 
So that was the tale of, a, of an entirely different band there, or seeming to be an entirely different band after just a year or so, not even a year. Um, the band, uh, led by Andy Kirk, had improved immensely in terms of its musicianship, and the arrangements of Mary Lou Williams had gotten a lot slicker and more complicated, uh, and the demands that she was placing on the instrumentalists were also correspondingly greater as well. So we started out with Mary's Idea, which began with a kind of a band fanfare, uh, going into a section where the tenor sax by Lawrence Freeman was trading uh, ideas with the rest of the band. And clearly the writing for the brass section is better, and it's better played too. Perhaps Edgar Battle improved the section a little bit on that one. There's also a clarinet solo, definitely by John Harrington that time. And uh, a couple of interesting transitions that happen along the way, leading to an alto solo, presumably then by John Williams. And if that's by John Williams, I'd have to say probably that solo that we heard earlier uh, that was in dispute would be by John Williams too. Then we heard Getting Off a Mess from a couple months later, starting out with an alto solo. In this case, I think it uh, may have been by John Harrington. It sounds like a different player. Uh, followed by uh, Alan Durham on trombone, and then a wonderful piano solo by Mary Lou Williams. In fact, Gunther Schuller in his swing era book, um, or rather his early jazz book, uh, referred to that as having Gershwin-esque harmonies. He was highly complimentary of Mary Lou Williams at this point in her career especially. Then we heard a little smooth saxophone section, a soli section, where all three of them played together. Very well written and very well played. And then uh, going into a trumpet solo, which was a little more definitive uh, on this than had been on the early sessions, presumably by Edgar Battle. And uh, ends up uh, in a stomping medium tempo. Andy Kirk was renowned for good dance tempos. And nothing went really, really fast, and probably not much went really, really slow either. It was all just a very compelling middle-of-the-road beat, and this was probably a good example of this tune getting off a mess. And the last chorus or two involves the band playing the melody um, in almost a riff style. Uh, riffs backed up some of the solos, and then the band was playing in a, in a close harmony version, the very syncopated version of the melody, which can kind of make us look forward to the Basie band from six or seven years later. So this is all from the Kansas City area. So it was in the air back then, and uh, all of these musicians not only talked to each other, but they played in each other's bands, and they participated in jam sessions. Um, Back then, the jam session atmosphere in Kansas City was extraordinarily uh, vivid and uh, very useful for developing musical ideas. And you can see it all the way through the 20s uh, when the Prendergast re regime of organized crime was running the city. The musicians were very uh, thankful for the gangsters keeping the, the bars and speakeasies open because they had a place to play. And uh, in through the 30s as well, up through the Basie years, and then ultimately to Charlie Parker and uh, the Jay McShann band. So Kansas City was a real hotbed of jazz for many, many years. So I hope you've enjoyed this program. My name is John Clark. You're listening to The Jazz Focus, and uh, our podcast is coming to an end, this one, but there will be more. In fact, the next one will be uh, on Dizzy Gillespie's early bands, not including Charlie Parker. We're going to listen to some early bebop recordings that are, sort of have one foot in the bebop camp and one foot in the swing camp as well. And then after that, I'd like to take a look at a blues singer that not many people think of these days. Her name was Maggie Jones. And one of the things that she had to recommend her was that Louis Armstrong said that his favorite accompaniment recordings, favorite recordings he made as a blues accompanist, were with Maggie Jones. So we'll be finding out why that is down the road. And then lots more ideas as well. So I hope you've enjoyed this, and uh, we'll tune in again for some podcasts coming up. And I'll see you on the other side.